This lecture is brought to you by Knox Theological Seminary on iTunes U. Knox is a seminary in the tradition of the Reformation that exists to educate men and women to declare and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that this teaching will be beneficial in your Christian life and ministry. We've got a little bit of time. We'll see if we can get through um, freedom of a Christian. And I was saying earlier, um, as much as I love the Heidelberg Disputation, and I think what it says is vital, it's nice after spending a few hours in it to turn to the freedom of a Christian, which is just, um, it's not that it isn't proclaiming truth, but it's just a little bit easier <laughs> to read. Unsophisticated. Yeah, it's, it's meant to be a sort of comprehensive framework for a person to understand um, the Christian life. And it just is communicated in a very clear uh, and straightforward way. I, during the lunch break, I thought, I wonder if I can just outline this real quick. And you can't tell it's not very neat looking, but it was just so easy to put it in an outline form of, we're gonna talk about um, passive righteousness. Here's what faith does. Uh, here's what, who we are in Christ. Now we're going to talk about active righteousness. Here's why we do works for the neighbor, and here's what they look like. So really, in this simple sort of short form, he really does fit almost everything in. Um, this is probably not the best version of it to have. It's not, at least not, not the nicest one. But it is nice in that um, you get the other two main 1520 treatises which is just an added bonus. Um, and the translation itself, is, it's fine. Like, there's no problem with it. It's just you can find some nicer versions now. Um, if you read those other two treatises, you'll see that um, Freedom of a Christian is, it's not a polemical doc or writing like the other two are. Um, it's, not not, it's not polemical. polemical. Yeah, he's not even explicitly saying, we've got to change everything, let's, ref let's reform everything. It's doing that more subtly, but it's just saying, let's establish a framework for the Christian faith. Um, it, it's still written in response to um, papal critiques of, of, Luther, of Luther's teachings. Um, but Luther is sitting down and saying, how can I communicate what the Christian life looks like um, to people? Like that, that's just the main thing that's happening here. And this is in 1520, of course, and this is the first presentation of the doctrine of justification in the way that it would sort of become famous and well-known. Um, so some, some Luther scholars don't really want to start doing anything before 1520 because this is where you get that. Yeah. Um, I, I, to, I mean, I can understand the logic there. I don't think it's obviously necessarily the right way to approach Luther, but there's some validity to that because this is, this is that first major statement. Um, as you will have read, the, the whole thing starts with this letter to the Pope. And it's a, it's a it's mostly nice and in a few places back, nice. backhanded um, letter, but you can tell that at this time he still does care for the Pope and the church, and he wants to see the Pope um, not come into harm, not be thrown under the bus by the people around him, and he hopes that the Pope can bring about the, the kind of change that would um, 
tone down the excesses of abuse and fix some of the doctrinal issues. And this treatise is supposed to you know, be part of helping to do that because he says it contains the whole Christian life in a brief form. Um, and he wants the Pope to receive it as a, as a sign of peace, a sort of reconciling document between the two of them. Um, of course, I, you know, the Pope didn't receive it like that, and it wasn't um, part of some sort of reconciliation. But that's the tone in which he is um, coming into it, which you can see at the end of that letter um, to the Pope. It says, may the Lord Jesus preserve you forever. That's what he's hoping for him. He's not um, the enemy. He's not calling him the Antichrist? Yeah, exactly. Whatever insult or generator? <laughs> um, and just to really oversimplify this, you can, you can draw a picture. The first, I'm not going to like doing this picture, but let's say here's God, here's me, here are others. I mean, this document just talks about the Christian life looks like this. We receive righteousness from God, and that is our passive righteousness. Everything comes down to us in this gift of faith in Jesus Christ, by which the law has been fulfilled and we are released from um, the burden of the commandments. And that then opens us to have active righteousness toward our neighbors. And the sort of flow of those arrows is extremely important. Like it's always coming down to you and then going out to others. Um, you never, it, it, the stream will never change such that your active righteousness is determinative of your passive righteousness because it's only the passive righteousness which can create the active righteousness. Um, and then the time that we have what I'd really like to do is just read some passages and talk through the main contents of, of the piece. Um, so, I mean, if you, you probably want to just have it open with you there. Um, I know you might be juggling things if you're trying to type. Um, but the, the, the document is based on this distinction between what he calls the inner man and the outer man. The inner man is the one who receives the patches, passive righteousness from God. The um, outer man is the one who works for his neighbor. Hmm. That's not the way he would use, like the inner man's not, does not equal flesh, the way Luke often uses flesh. Well, when you get to, when we do get to the second part, he will talk about why do we do works? You know, the inner man has received this righteousness and is fully absolved but the outer man is still in the world and still needs to be tamed and disciplined. So there is some of that flesh nature in there to the outer man. Okay, yeah, because that's how, I mean, I remember Luther kind of kind of accusing Erasmus of being quasi-gnostic, so to mm -hmm. speak, by saying flesh doesn't mean body, it means sinful desires, which is everything about us, body, soul, mind, spirit, yeah. whatever. All right, so sorry to take us off track. No, you're good. Um, the way Luther starts when he's talking about passive righteousness is saying, what is the one thing that the soul needs before God? And that one thing that the soul needs is the word. So if you look on page um, 279, about 
halfway down. He says, one thing and only one thing is necessary for Christian life, righteousness, and freedom. That one thing is the most holy word of God, the gospel of Christ. And that sets out um, how everything is going to work from here. Because the logic of this treatise, just like I think the logic of Galatians works, is you have the word that comes to the soul and creates faith. And faith lets you exist in love towards others. And it's always that relationship of word, then faith, and then love. And never the opposite way. The word comes down and creates this faith. Um, and then he has three things that faith does. Um, the first thing that faith does, of course, is that it frees you from the law, which he says on page 282. Um, how, does faith, how does faith alone justify? How can it do such a great thing? He says, first of all, remember what has been said, namely that faith alone without works justifies, frees, and saves. We shall make this clearer later on. But the way he gets around, or the way he explains this point, that faith frees you from the law, is the distinction between law and gospel. And this is one of the earliest and most clear um, presentations of the distinction. Um, we can talk about this now, or if you want to hold off and do it tomorrow with Galatians, um, I'll leave that up to you. Okay. Well, the basic thing here is just that he says, um, it's just like what we've been saying, the law demands things, the commandments demand things, but he says the promises, of, the promises of God give what the commandments of God demand and fulfill what the law prescribes so that all things may be God's alone. Um, so the first thing that the law does is it just frees you from, the first thing that faith does is that frees you from the law because of this distinction between law and gospel. It frees you from the penalty of the law. The penalty of the law, yeah. And that's the, thing, that's the thing we'll keep coming back to, is that um, faith doesn't free you from works. It frees you from works misunderstood. Okay. Say that again one more time. It's it, it says that faith doesn't free you from works. Right. It frees you from your misunderstandings of, work, of your works. But I think in order to do that, it has to free you from the law. Yeah. Like that. Completely, which is like penalty, like also the power of the law, which is, you know, uh, what is it? The power of the law of sin, right? Uh, Corinthians 15. You know. It never frees us from the demand of the law, though, or whatever. The gospel? Or faith. Faith never frees us. Well, I mean, Romans 7 says we're released from the law so that we can actually bear fruit to God. I guess we'll have to wait until we get to antinomian disputations, because yeah. Luther would say the Decalogue is eternal, and its its demands never go away on the Christian. Mm. Mm. But yeah, and that's the, the, what complicates that question, which we're not fully getting into here, right. is the how is that demand there insofar as you are as a Christian, or insofar as you are still the old person in the flesh? And that distinction is always crucial, because the demand is always there but you have a distinct relationship to it in faith. Yeah, yeah. Which, that's even loosey-goosey saying it like that, because yeah. what that distinct relationship is, is 
is key. Uh, so just a kind of related question of timing, Reformation, law, gospel, distinction. If this is Luther's first sort of formal, more full-fledged articulation of law and gospel, even though he read it before in the distinction, and Melanchthon comes out with a pretty robust explanation of that distinction in 1521 in the Loci. Yeah. Um, who, uh, who's d developing this first... Or where is this starting to be, this uh, this distinction being, where does this originate? Who's talking to who? How is this conversation happening such that Melanchthon, so close to this, is writing his own thing? Or did Melanchthon within a year read this and then take off on a whole theological trajectory that he didn't have before? Like, what's the sub-conversation going on over the last four years? I mean, they were they were around each other a lot. So um, sort of percolation of ideas could have happened pretty quickly between those guys. Um, and I mean, Luther is sort of, he doesn't want to attribute the development of this theology to something that came before or something that already existed because the way he describes it, it was just, I was reading Romans. Right, I, sure. I, When I understood that the righteousness of God is not his wrath towards me, but it's a gift that was when everything started to fall into place. Um, and I think that is, to a certain extent, true. Theology before Luther could distinguish law and gospel, but not in this particular way. Not mean it. Yeah. They had spirit of letter with the yeah. and they right. dormant for a while. Yeah. And then, you, what did Huss and Wycliffe do? How did they discern the spirit of the letter? It was, I don't remember that. It's a, it's a part of their proto, proto gospelers. Yeah. Luther appeals to Bernard, too, mm -hmm. in several places in this concept of the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, well, he, he can, he'll always point to Augustine, he'll point to St. Bernard, and he'll also point but to. In terms of the emphasis on yeah. distinguishing between the law and the gospel being the mark of a theologian. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to, so I, I had the same question as Zach, so I'm picking up two and pressing in. You know, where did, right. what trees was Luther eating from mm. 15, 14 to 15, 18, where he starts to have it, you know, in Heidelberg, the mm. law of God, you know, yeah. most saluted, you know, the important. Because that, now here in 20. Right, because that distinction is certainly biblical. It's made in, in 2 Corinthians 3 and Romans 3 and those kinds of places. But no one is articulating it this way. Mm -hmm. So he's discerning something and then developing a, a mode of thought about how to therefore apply that mm -hmm. to all of Scripture. Uh, and that is new, you know, um, at least that, that robustly articulated as something so systematic is the wrong word, but overarching umbrella, like as the prevailing hermeneutic. Yeah. Um, and so who's teaching him this? And if not, I mean, is, so there, it's just he and Melanchthon in a pub talking about law and gospel. And we're like, yeah, it is the way. And let's like walk through. Yeah, yeah Genesis, I see it there. Yeah, you know, like, what's happening? I, I mean, I... Or what profs are naming this? Yeah, I don't want to be too overly simple, but I, I mean, I think there is a lot of just discussion and close reading of the Bible taking a lot of time in that 
oratio meditatio, meditatio, you know, that sort of thing. Part of his reformational break. Yeah, I mean, he, he, Luther was not... Apart from the law of reveal, yeah. to faith. To faith. He wasn't some sort of a unique genius necessarily, but I, he did have his insights. And sort of developing this this way, I think, in a lot of ways, you have to attribute the bulk of it just to Luther. But, that, but that, with that being said, he did draw on Augustine a lot. And he, he would say when, you're, when you read a lot of the saints, you know, between Augustine and, and him, they didn't probably have an understanding of the distinction of the law and gospel when they wrote their theology. But when you look at their prayers and how they actually um, existed before God, you know, it's sort of a lex orandi, lex credendi kind of thing. Um, you can see that most of the time life can have its way of throwing you into something like this kind of an understanding. Uh, yeah, and I guess maybe the big, bigger historical question for me is just no Protestant, almost no Protestant, when they think about like evangelical, mm -hmm. like me who grew up in an evangelical Christian, can identify as a Protestant and knows who Martin Luther is, no, no is even aware of the law gospel distinction even in name, yeah. they just don't know it. And yet, they, they'll, they'll say justification by faith alone if they've had any education, mm. uh, and maybe some stuff about church authority. Yeah. But they'll never point to the Reformation as a watershed moment of giving us a new way of looking at scripture. Mm. And so uh, the question is like, why was this key reformational insight totally lost? Such that we don't even, it's not even like a blip in history books. Yeah. I it's just as significant as the rediscovery of justification by faith alone. Yeah. And it's linked to it, right? Yeah. Um, but no one talks about it. It's, that's a really good question. Part of it is that people didn't really start reading Luther again. There was a sort of Luther renaissance in the really early 20th century. Um, where you get all of these German theologians who start going back to Luther. Um, he kind of, he didn't fall off the map, but he just wasn't the main thing in, in German Protestant theology for a long time. Um, I, mean, I think that would contribute to it some, but then partially it's just, Lutheranism has tend to be kind of a, a closed conversation a lot. Um, but that's where Reformation and but I was also talking about, it. we were talking about at lunch how this is not, I don't, this is Luther's insight and distinction, but it's not a Lutheran yeah. distinction. Like, for, and for me, who's not a Lutheran, I still believe that I have a reformational heritage and right to mm -hmm. claim this distinction. Yeah. You know, coming from the lines of Calvin, coming from the lines of, uh, of Cranmer in some ways, and feeling them as my fathers as well. Mm -hmm. Um and, and that distinction plays into their writings, too. And yeah. still, I don't know, I'm just sort of voicing confusion as to why it's taken so long in my own study and Protestant existence for this to ever emerge before me. Hmm. I don't have a good answer to that. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't know what to say to that question. I think it's... Interesting. I should be going back. I always think of Huss and Wycliffe as the two examples of the proto reformers. Yeah. I think, and my memory's just not there. Huss is more of a. They, they were, they were, they were, they were, they were 
Yeah, but they wanted to get into the scriptures. Mm -hmm. They both wanted the scriptures and the vernacular. They both, I mean, they were going back to the source before humanism. They wanted to to, to let this word be a free word to the, to the people. Thought to look at that. I, I think it's embedded in, in Presbyterian's documents. So I think one of the answers, I think there's several answers, but I think one of the answers is it, it masquerades under different vocabulary a little bit. Mm. Just a little bit. Yeah, that's fair. I think that's one of the answers mm -hmm. to why is this. I think it's there in Reformed theology. It's just people don't call it the law gospel divide or the law gospel distinction. How is it buried in covenant language? Uh, covenant and promise. And yeah, law. covenant and promise. And law is there. Law, um, law and promise. Law and covenant. Yeah. Um, works and grace. What you know? Covenant works. Covenant works and promise. Um, as a formal preaching method, though, the Puritans probably historically muddied muddied up for the covenanters. I would say. Because they were just pietists at heart. Uh, as a preacher. What at heart? Pietists. Gerald Brazen, you know that in January. Because, I mean, like, I, it's interesting, I read, I came across that interesting, uh, I don't know, factoid, that the Puritans in America, the number one uh, scripture, book of the Bible they preached on the most was the Song of Psalms. Yeah. They preached on a love for Christ and Christ's love for everybody us. Everybody did. Isn't that weird? That's yeah, it was a huge passage that was preached on, or a huge book that was preached on Christologically. But you can lose the law gospel distinction a little bit when it's when the conversation is so much about God's love and our love for Him. And that's not to say that's a bad thing or a good thing. That's probably just a historical, I don't know, accident, maybe. Hmm. Yeah, I, I would be interested to know more about why. I, it's it's not that it. Yeah, it's not that it hasn't been there. It's just it's never been as prominent as you might expect it, and which is which is unfortunate because the logic of the way that faith frees you from the law, Luther's first understanding of what faith does here, is premised on this distinction. Yeah. The only reason it can free you from the law is because these two things are distinct. Right. They are set in this very particular relationship. Um, and if you remove that distinction, faith doesn't have a thing to free you from. Um, so. If Reformed theology has informed evangelicalism more than Lutheranism, I think that's fair to say, right? I don't know. We're, and maybe not, not really. good reform theology, but the reform movement. The the Puritans, pietism, yeah. right? That's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. So, within the reformed movement, historically, I don't think the law of gospel distinction has ever been that clear. Mm -hmm. You know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not really in anything I've ever read. I, I don't ever see it. Uh, I don't hear it emphasized. So then you have the Lutheran emphasis on it. They've never changed that emphasis, but they didn't have as much influence in American Christianity. They've all, you know, Lutheran historians will say like they moved to America, they kind of 
took over, you know, farms in Iowa and they were like in the middle of nowhere and they didn't really care to influence culture yeah. that much. There, there is, yeah, there is some of that because there was a lot of sort of, I don't know, ethnic cloistering of, you know, German Lutherans here, Scandinavian Lutherans here, and you're all sort of going to church and using your, you know, mother tongue. And so that wouldn't have been very um, yeah, opening they, towards they others. Too, yeah. These courses provide a glimpse into our academic programs. Knox students can take one-week or semester-length courses in person at our South Florida campus or choose to complete a degree entirely online. By bringing together academic excellence, a vibrant community of learning, and flexible scheduling, Knox offers today's students timeless truth through modern convenience. For more information about earning credit toward a master's degree, please visit our website at knoxseminary.edu.